Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, the weekly podcast that is rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. This is episode 143, and I'm your host, Brian Alexander. You can find me on social media as Red Hills Rancher. Ranching Reboot is made possible through the support of my patrons on patreon.com and my subscribers on Spotify. If you'd like to join the growing ranks of podcast supporters, check out the links in the show notes or check my Linktree link in any social media bio. Since we've all made it through Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, and Cyber Monday, if you're still looking for some last-minute stuff that you need to get by the holidays, check out some of the podcast supporters for last-minute gifts. Like, I don't know, Wild Ass Soap. Soap makes a good gift. CBD makes a good gift. You can find both those at Wild Ass Soap. Beef? Beef makes a pretty good gift, especially if you have you can't get some to uh, any of your friends on the coast. Blue Nest Beef? They've got you covered. Bobo Links? Hey, they make a great stocking stuffer. Blue Nest Beef got you covered on that one, too. So, check those out. Buying something through the links in the show notes gives you a nice little discount, and most offer an additional coupon code on checkout, so... Be sure to take advantage of that. This week, I'm thrilled to have a very special guest with me, Zach Withers. Zach's journey is as diverse as it is fascinating. Starting from a degree in African politics to brewing, agriculture, and cider production, now he's a pioneering force in regenerative agriculture, passionately working on his own farm. With the vision for a more sustainable and equitable food system, Zach embodies the spirit of innovation and resilience that we celebrate here on Ranching Reboot. So let's welcome Zach and dive into a conversation that's sure to reboot our thinking about agriculture and sustainability. So Zach Withers, thank you for being here today. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Um, so why don't you get us kicked off and get us running here and give us your 30-second elevator spiel about who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Zach Withers. Uh, I was born and raised in central New Mexico and uh, grew up on my grandparents' horse ranch. They Polk's Arabians. They bred and showed and sold uh, Egyptian Arabian horses and uh, moved a couple miles up the road when I was maybe in high school, but still spent most of my time hanging out at grandpa's and then went to school on the east coast and got into farming in the champlain valley vermont and then came back home the eight nine years eight eight years ago actually eight years ago like tomorrow i think uh, and my brother had just gotten out of the military my other brother had stayed and taken care of my grandpa so we decided when my grandpa passed that we were gonna all chip in and buy the family farm and eight years later we're mostly focused on heritage breed pork production. So we're breeding about 20 sows, small flock of layers. Um, and recently we've added in some sheep. We've done a, a little bit of grazing, but we only have about 40 acres uh, and, you know, 75 head of Egyptian Arabian horses for 40 years to really have an impact on your pastures. So it's uh, more about using animals to uh, try to grow grass than about using grass to try to grow animals. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the back background. We can get more into any of that you're interested in. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's plenty of rabbits here to chase. Um, so your grandparents showed Arabians, and they and they raised the Arabian. You said forty acres. Originally fifty. Uh, grandma wasn't great with finances, so they sold off a couple five acre lots to make some balloon payments. Now we got some neighbors down the road, but um, 
we're still sitting on about 40 acres and uh, sort of in a mixed, uh, sort of at the edge of the Ponderosa Alpine, we're like 7,000 feet. So it's uh, pinon juniper for the most part, a little bit of Ponderosa, and then we're got mixed grasslands. So it's a little bit of a savanna sort of aspect, but yeah, on a good year, 18 inches of precipitation, most of it comes over the course of a few weeks in the fall. We get the monsoons pretty hard, although that was kind of true growing up. Everything's gotten a little wonky these days. So, yeah, I think the weather patterns that we grew up with don't exist anymore. It doesn't seem like it anyway. Permanent state of weirdness. I like that. I like that. So you got, so that land's pretty degraded then. Um, yeah, it's, it's coming back. Uh, my grandma, who is, uh, sort of the, the driving force behind all of it. She was a little bit crazy when she got much older. She ended up taking a tumble off of a horse while she was riding back. Um, I'm pretty sure riding back from the bar, uh, but she broke her leg and ended up losing one of her legs and decided that she just didn't want to deal with people anymore and uh, took the horses and moved to a town called Mountain Air about an hour south of here. My grandpa bought her some land and set her up a, a double wide and she lived down there with one leg driving her driving her Masty Ferguson tractor around and taking care of her horses. So the land got about 10 years of total rest. Um, and my grandpa would pay somebody to brush hog it every once in a while. So a little bit of, you know, not, not like total complete rest, but got all the animals off of it for a long while. And then we've been slowly doing intensive grazing and a little bit of compost application and trying to manage it. So we've seen some secession, like there's less bare ground now than there was when we started. Uh, it still looks pretty rough, but what I'm thinking about like the 10 years that, you know, he, he paid somebody to come bush hog it. Are you noticing any effects from that kind of a treatment? Like that, that treatment long-term year over year, is that, is that something that you're having to deal with to try to regenerate the land? Um, I think that the rest with a little bit of mechanical, um, you know, treatment was actually good the downside is is that i remember growing up we had like i mean the the good part about having that many horses and having um trail you know semi truck loads of hay coming on is it's like quite a bit of nitrogen and um so you're feeding a lot into the land even though you're not really treating the plant communities right the sunflowers always did really good so we used to have you know 12 foot tall rows of sunflowers along both sides of the road and the brush hogging kind of kind of knocked some of that back, but they're starting to come back. Um, it's been more interesting sort of watching as we've been grazing it. Like we've had different, you know, I remember seeing like, we call it, um, snake weed. I think some people call it rabbit brush. It's a pretty invasive and, uh, they call it when it kind of kills all the plants around it uh, um, that came through allotropic. allotropic yeah. Yeah. I think something like that that came through like five years ago and it just like completely took over all the pastures and i was like oh my goodness we've been trying to like graze these lands to regenerate them for two years and now it's just all turning into this weed and what are we going to do um and i like tried to figure out if we could uh my my previous uh career was in the spirits world so i'm like a little still and started trying to make a um essential oils because apparently these these weeds that are considered like a huge problem for rangelands in the West, uh, have like 128 known compounds and 60 some of them have 
medicinal medicinal properties. So I was trying to make like snake oil. I figured we'd be the pig farmer selling snake oil. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting. We just, you know, watched and a couple years later, 90% die off. Really? I don't know why. I don't know why, but just in, intensive graze, long rest, intensive graze, long rest. And um, the secession just, you know, at some point, all the plants just didn't didn't come back and then now we've got uh russian thistle to tumbleweeds but i'm learning to just not worry about it and um realize it's just part of the process and this is what healing the land looks like it takes a long time and do you feel like you're moving towards higher succession weeds or, or forbs i i hate calling them weeds right like what is a weed what a plant out of place a plant out of place but if we're talking about a native pasture how is a plant ever out of place because that's what's supposed to be out there is plants and i get okay we can go down a rabbit hole and talking about native versus invasive species alan savory said something well, i don't know probably 10 years ago that i had to think about before it really clicked and i'll make it make sense What's the difference between an archaeologist and a grave robber? A couple hundred years. HD? Oh, just time. It's just time. So a couple hundred years, yeah. The difference between a native and invasive species is, I mean, every species is invasive to some degree in in some environment, right? And yeah, I don't like the native, um, you know, invasive dichotomy, like what is your management goals? Like a plant out of place for me and my pastures is something that my animals won't eat. They won't eat Russian thistle. Um, they do actually eat a little bit of rabbit brush. Not like they're not going to take a bunch of it, but the snake weed has, um, something in it that they'll take a little bit of. Um, so there's a little bit of it left. And I don't, you know, I don't consider it a weed anymore when it was 80% of the pastures and was competing and out competing and killing all the other more palatable species. Then I was like, okay, I don't like this, but, um, you know, I just waited and kept doing good management and it improves. So. And I think that's part of the point is yeah. One year you might have a, you might have a quote, an undesirable plant or a plant out of place pop up in that paddock. It's, it's maybe not something to worry about. Just keep doing what you're doing to take care of the soil and don't worry about a specific plant take care of the soil and the soil takes care of the plants and eventually you know if we're doing things right adding biology high density long grass periods with adequate precipitation that's the trick <laughs> that yeah that's the trick you know adequate precipitation as long as we're, we're hitting those targets you know this year i might have old world blue stem or rabbit brush or snake weed Next year, it might be completely different just because of something that we do not understand that happened in the ecosystem area or the environment. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I think you almost have to adapt to be comfortable with having a totally different range of plants on a regular basis. Like last year, last couple of years, the timing of the precipitation has really varied a lot. And so I've been seeing plants that I've never seen before popping up. And like, what is this? And what do I do with it? And what, like, it looks cool trying to figure out what it is. And, uh, you know, just the spring rains came, um, really early this year 
And then last year they came really late. We almost, or no opposite last year, they came really early and we had one sort of um, plant community really thrive. And then this year it was like, we called them the May soons. We got tons of rain in May, which is kind of, kind of late for like spring rains and really early for monsoons. So entirely different, you know, I, uh, I learned a lot. We did a bunch of compost application and intensive grazing last year and then tried to, to rest this year and ended up with a monoculture of mustard. And it was like, Oh, I should have gone back and grazed it again while the mustard was still young and palatable. Um, and didn't do that because I thought maybe the next thing would come up and, you know, I was like, Oh, okay. So now I know like that timing of rain, you get these sort of dominant plant communities. The mustard is actually edible for humans when it's really small. It's, it's pretty good and animals will mow it down hard. Um, but once it gets above, once it seeds out, it's totally unpalatable and it creates like, it just shades everything out. So now I'm going to do some bale grazing and mowing and stuff to knock that down and incorporate it. And then, you know, try again next year. Well, it's interesting. You, you brought up, you know, timing of rain when you guys normally get your rains, you know, some in the spring, most in the fall. And I've been, I've been really trying to pay attention the last three years since the drought got bad and kind of set in of what my plant recovery was like through different times of the year based on rainfall or what kind of plants that I've grown more of based on, you know, when the rains came. And remind me where you're, where you're ranching at. Uh, yeah, I'm in South Central Kansas. So I'm about 20 South miles. Kansas. Yeah, I'm like 20 miles from Oklahoma, halfway between Colorado and Missouri. All right. I'm not that far north of you, but quite a ways. I dro- drove through there recently. Uh, man, I actually kind of got a soft spot in my heart for Kansas. I think there's it's a bit of a hidden gem. Shh, don't, don't tell anybody. I mean... I shouldn't say that being from New Mexico. I'm like, you know, I tell everybody there's just meth heads and scorpions here. Just stay out. There's no water, bunch of criminals, nothing cool about it. Yeah. Uh, so when, uh, after, after, uh, regenerating Santa Fe, we didn't leave immediately. Like we stayed around the rest of the day and ended up leaving. I think it was, uh, we drove home Sunday and, we went up to Tahoe. I drove up to Tahoe. So my wife and I did. And then we took this big tour around, you know, that North loop around through red river and back down. And when it's you come country. out of that, it's gorgeous. And then you come out of the mountains and you get to this town called Cimarron, New Mexico. And it yep. says gateway between the mountains and the plains. And they're not lying. You go East of Cimarron and it was basically flat all the way home in cowboy country out there. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, northeast, northeast New Mexico, eastern Colorado, western Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Panhandle. Yeah, it, we we could definitely use some work. There's some pretty spots, and there's some spots that I just kind of chase the white lines and keep right on going. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting though. Like, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit, like, um, jumping ahead, maybe some where uh. We opened a retail food store a couple of years ago and uh, we've been getting meat from a bunch of other places because we don't produce enough to support even a single retail outlet. Um, and one of the ranches we work with is up in the northeastern part of the state and really fascinating, like gotten to spend a lot of time up there. And there's some other big ranches uh, 
you know, Sam and Ariel live right next to the gal that we buy most of our beef from. There's another ranch, uh, Fort Union ranch that I've become good friends with the folks up there and, uh, getting to dip my toe a little bit more into the big cattle ranching world and hear about the management challenges and the, all that stuff. It's, it's really different than running 40 acres and really mostly we operate on about an acre and a half is what we what we use for producing hogs and we produce a lot of meat that way, but it's, uh, it's a very different sort of operation. And I'm, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, the, the larger landscape management stuff and some of what you're doing and the differences between a, you know, a hundred thousand acre ranch and a 7,000 acre ranch versus 40 acres. It's like all the concepts, you know, how, how do you take the concepts and apply them, you know, in a context sort of, appropriate appropriate way that seems to be a major challenge and um part of the conversation i'm really really fascinated by right now is how you create more like unity in the agricultural world you know you have the the big guys the industrial guys the commodity producers you got the you know tree hugging dirt worshiping hippie farmers and you know we're all kind of aimed at the same thing but the conversations just seem to be really disparate so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. That was meant to be a question. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that it's interesting to think about, and I do spend, I, I spend quite a bit of time thinking about it. And I'm not sure if there ever really can be, quote, unity between the two sides. And even just kind of framing it that way internally in my head kind of almost feels wrong because I don't want to compete. I don't want... Like, I don't want to be in conflict with anybody else that's trying to, quote, feed the world or just feed their community or feed their family. Okay. But at a certain point, the unity, it's like if we're on a regenerative side of the fence and trying to produce things in a more natural way, you know, without hormones, without antibiotics, without a lot of added grain, just, you know, trying to keep trying to do everything ourselves and, you know, reduce our outside inputs. The other side of this business, you know, whether we're going to talk about, you know, the, the, the totally captured chicken and pork side, or whether we're going to talk about the mostly captured beef side, it's, I think we're always going to be looked at, not always, but for, for the foreseeable future, we're going to continue to be looked at as, on the fringe or a niche producer because there's no way that what you what things like you and I are doing will ever scale up enough to feed the world right the quote feed the world that Earl Butts brought us from get big or get out and I, you know that that narrative bothers me because something like 75 to 85% of the world I've said I've, I've quoted this number before, and I was a little off, but seventy-five to eighty percent of the world is fed by subsistence farmers. On ten and women, yeah, on ten acres or less, and almost yeah. all all farmed by women. I can believe that. I I can definitely believe that. But here, you know, we have this, we have a different culture here. You know, we have the cowboy culture from the West, and you know, the romanticism of big ranches. The sad reality is that's not where most cattle come from. I mean, a lot of cattle come from back east. 
they're raised in, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 head herds, somebody's backyard that's got a town job. Yeah. Places where you count head per acre, not acres per head. Right. And they load those calves up and they send those calves out here to the plains for grass in the summer and then to go to the feedlot and get marketed. You know, your average cow calf guy has 45 head. Like that's the average size of the cow herd in the United States is like 45 head. Okay. I know some guys that have several thousand. I, I mean, I could name five guys right off, right off, right off top of my head that live within 20 miles of me that all have more than a thousand head of cattle. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you think about like how much the regenerative movement tends to talk about like smaller operators. But when you get into like using cattle for trying to do land regeneration, the guys who are having the really, you know, fence line contrast, changing the weather patterns impact on land are all running 800 to a thousand at least. Yep. So at least in like our part of the world where it's really arid, um, I think you can have that same similar impact in places where you get higher precipitation um, with smaller herds, but uh, it is, it is a, a bit of a conundrum when you have some of the regenerative parts of the, the Alan Savory world, at least, you know, Alan Savory is really geared towards, he developed his grazing management techniques while he was operating on a million plus acres. Yeah. Um, so that's, I loved like reading Alan Savory and holistic management was like a watershed moment of like, oh my goodness, this is the first time I've ever read a book that is totally applicable to my context until I got to like page 200 and something. And there's this little thing that's like, well, this doesn't work that well at a, at a really small scale. It's like two cows on two acres is very different than 200 cows on 200 acres. Um, it's just, you don't get the same animal impact, the same herd effect. We're trying to figure out how to like get around that. And that all, a lot of that comes back to economics, not so much the, um, you know, the ability of the animals to have the impact. It's about, do you have the time to put into managing the animals in a way that creates that impact and then get paid $300 for doing it? You know, can't spread your costs out for management across a thousand animals um, when you're operating on 40 acres. So like the grazing component of our, we're not even trying to do grazing as a commercial part of it. It's geared more about education, about, um, just land management and the commercial part of the operation is all the hogs. You know, they quite literally bring home the bacon. So, well, I'm, I'm still trying to circle around this, this unity, this unity concept. So, well, let me throw something back at you. Maybe it'll help, uh, sort of point out like what you were talking about a minute ago with, uh, you know, regenerative being based mostly in this idea that we're going to, um, eliminate external outputs. We're going to, you know, use the most natural way of using solar cycling. Like if you're running cattle, the cattle are feeding themselves. They're processing the manure into, uh, or processing the, the, the grass into manure. The manure is feeding the soil, um, increasing water cycling, all good. Right. Um, like our operation, uh, you know, last couple of years, we haven't had grazing animals on the, on the place, you know, all of our feed is coming from the outside. We use, external inputs to feed all of our animals and we're not actually connecting back to the most of the compost is going towards like helping other people doing market gardening and supplying the you know affordable uh, compost inputs for people who are doing vegetable production 
So like outside of the little bit of grazing, like we don't really fit into what most people think about as a regenerative model. We're not growing crops. We're not, you know, like we do a little bit of grazing, but that's not like a commercial operation. The commercial operation is based about taking byproduct and food waste, things that are considered, un, you know, I think are undervalued and then using that to, um, and using animals to process that into like biological soil amendment, um, which, you know, methane is what comes out of anaerobic digestion of organic material, like in the landfill is 25 times the greenhouse gas impact of carbon dioxide. Um, can you explain that for people that people that don't know anaerobic versus aerobic decomposition? I can try. There's much smarter people than me that could do a much better job of it. But the basic gist is that if you put food in the landfill uh, and then you pack it in and it's not getting oxygen put to it, um, the way that it breaks down produces, uh, I was just talking with somebody about the, the actual chemistry here because it's really interesting. It's turning nitrogen into methane um, because the organisms that operate in the absence of oxygen uh, produce a different chemical reaction than organisms that, um, are aerobic or have oxygen. So when we take, you know, the food waste, the manures, the whatever, and we take them out and put them into windrows and we turn the wind, you know, turn the piles, um, we're adding oxygen. Uh, we're also adding a lot of carbon. Like we live in an area that is a fire dependent ecosystem that hasn't burned in a century. Ooh. So it's heavily, heavily overgrown. And now it's also like suburbia i mean i grew up in the country but now i live in suburbia and uh the fire danger for everybody living here is really high so there's a lot of effort to thin the forest so we've figured out how to take the wood byproduct which most of the contractors have to pay to go dump it at the transfer station and we figured out just give them the gate codes and we get dump truck loads of wood mulch which put a foot of wood mulch down in the pens divert a couple million pounds of food waste a year animals eat the food waste, it goes into the wood mulch. So the carbon mixed with the nitrogen, uh, and then you make sure that you add water. And most of the reason we keep on picking up food waste is just because we're hauling effectively thousands of gallons of water onto the farm every week. So it really cuts down on how much we have to run our well. Um, and so water, and then use a skid steer to turn it, you add oxygen, carbon from the wood mulch, nitrogen from the food waste and the urine and manure those things, if they have enough oxygen, will um, get processed into compost. And it's pretty interesting. We actually had somebody from Los Alamos Natural Laboratories come out and uh, take a gas spectrometer and read the, the, the gas coming off the compost piles. And they were baffled by how little methane was coming off of our compost piles, speculating that the microorganisms inside of the compost piles are actually eating the methane and maybe turning it back into nitrogen, which I don't know. I'm not a scientist and I'm just maybe misinterpreting something somebody said. And, you know, that's the aspiration, but, you know, to come back to the point, like what we're doing is, is a little bit more like a hippy dippy crunchy CAFO. Like all my animals are in pens. Um, all my inputs are external, but we're, we're impacting water cycles. We're impacting, you know, economic cycles around local food providing, you know, keeping methane out of the, out of the air, out of the atmosphere. So like, well, if, 
I mean, if you weren't doing what you were doing, there would be more CAFO pork, more CAFO chicken in your local food system, which that's just externalized cost for everybody. Yeah. But the, you know, the question of like, how do we create more unity in the, in the food world? Like the logic behind what we're doing actually fits is, is not totally dissimilar from some of the things that the big capos do that we call them out for greenwashing, like Smithfield. If you don't know, Smithfield is a currently a Chinese owned corporation yeah. um, that controls, I think almost depends on who you talk to or what you read 40 to 60 to 90% of the, of the pork in the, in the U S and I've heard that the, actually the Chinese corporation is not that happy with Smithfield USA and they're trying to figure out how to separate it back out. And maybe some of that has to do with like Smithfield dropped $500 million into capping manure lagoons to sequester methane and put in the digesters to burn it, to produce energy and are running pipelines to run that, you know, cause methane is natural gas. Right. Um, so like we can, you know, the new buzzword I've heard is like, the sustainable natural gas is like natural gas. That's a byproduct of agriculture or some other industry. And I have problems with everything that they're doing, but like some problems, but like, it's interesting to think about like, how can we shift the whole spectrum instead of trying to push, you know, everybody towards one end of the spectrum. This is the thing that I've been pondering for a while. Okay. Some of the issue I have with seeing future unity in agriculture is the difference between owner operators like you and me versus a corporate operator. And by that, I mean an outside when I say corporate operator, okay, that means that management is divorced from ownership. And whether or not labor's on the same layer as management, that's irrelevant. But that's management is divorced from ownership in that kind of a situation where ownership is going to tell management what the goal is rather than management and ownership working together to find a goal. So, like, it, people listen, listen a lot, like, this kind of review, but... I'm, I'm kind of unique because I work for, I'm not unique. I work for a crazy person. I work for myself. And I also have a crazy person working for me, which is also me. So I wear all three hats. I wear owner, manager, and I wear labor. So I've, you know, I've got to do all the project planning. I've got to do the nuts and bolts on the ground. I got to figure out how to pay for it. So when you're just hired and I'll just, let's just say, uh, Deseret ranches. And I'm not picking on Deseret ranches. I think they've got a great system. And maybe they're, and they're probably not even the best example because they're actually kind of better than what I'm going to talk about. But say you're managing a ranch for a big corporation and they come in and they're like, you're not hitting these performance targets, but you're like, Hey, but my, I'm hitting all my land targets like this, this, and this are happening to land. And I said, well, but you're not hitting these performance targets, either hit these targets or we'll find somebody that will. And now you're in a position where you're going to make a decision that may harm the land near term or long term in order to keep your corporate corporate shareholders happy, your absentee landowner happy, or whatever. 
And those people, you know, they're insulated from the consequences of their actions. They're insulated from the consequences of the practices that they want you to do on that land. Because, I mean, it's awful easy to farm corn from a boardroom in Illinois, right? You know, it's awful easy to raise cows from an office in New York City. Yeah, or from a penthouse inside of a specially built prison in Brazil, like half the beefs, half the beef in the world get <laughs> managed from. You know, JBS. I was going to say, you're not talking about Juan Batista in sense, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that the JBS brothers make the cartel guys look like a little bit like sissies. I mean, those guys are ruthless. Yeah. And I'm not talking about unity with that part of agriculture. I'm talking about the, you know, the unity between the cow calf producer that, um, you know, sells to the feedlot in Kansas or unity with like, you know, we still grow 90% of the corn is still grown on family owned farms. Um, you know, corporate agriculture, the corporatization of agriculture, huge problem. But I think that the reason that, you know, the thing I'm worried about is that if we don't figure out how to bridge some of the gaps between, you know, the small family farmer who's mostly conventional and is, you know, sort of bought into the, to the current model, um, between the guys who are trying to do things differently or trying to like internalize the costs, create positive feedback loops, close the nutrient cycles, do all the things that, that really make agriculture sustainable. If, if we can't figure out how to get everybody on the same team, then like, it makes it so much easier for these big corporate guys to just run the show and dictate everything from a boardroom, get rid of land ownership, like get, you know, consolidate the land base. I mean, it's a, there's real problems here. And my, my last few years of trying to work with other producers and, uh, you know, navigate ways through supply chains. The thing that I run into a lot is this, like, well, we don't, we don't want change because we are sort of dependent on this existing system. And so if you're coming in and trying to say, we need to do things differently, that comes as like a threat to us. And I'm, I'm hoping that to see an emergence of a different narrative that talks about how we can actually, you know, call it whatever you want to call it. Regenerative agriculture saves money it makes operations more sustainable. Like you don't have to be certified organic. You don't have to be a hippie. You don't have to like be spiritually connected to the soil to know that like managing your soil for soil health will make you more resilient. will make you, you know, the, the hard times easier and the easy times all that much better. And, you know, so localized, regionalized supply chains means that we shorten the supply chains, more of the retail dollars going back to the, going back to the actual farmer and, you know, when we re-internalize the cost of production and market that, people are willing to pay for it. You know, a huge part of the problem we run into is just people pay 5 10% of their, of their income on food. And the farmer, the environment, the animals pay the rest. Yep. You know, we need people to be willing to pay 20, 30% of their income on food. If we're going to be able to fund, you know, keeping food systems viable, like the, I always get so bothered with like this narrative of, sorry, I'm monologuing. Go ahead. Jump in there. It's all right. Uh, I got some thoughts on family farms and what they're all about, but I got to take a quick break real quick. 
to recycle some coffee. So we'll be back in just a minute. All right. And we're back. So some thoughts about family-owned farms. And gosh, I mean, it's it's kind of a tough one because who has a family farm? Everybody does, even Cargill. Like they're, they're parts of the Cargill Corporation that are classified as a family-owned farm. They can like they can even classify, you know, certain big feedlot systems like that big Easter Day deal that blew up out in Oregon a couple years ago. Do you remember that Easter Day family? I I don't, but I believe you. They had a couple hundred. They had like a hundred, hundred fifty thousand head feed yard. That's a family farm. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. The guy that used to be the head of NCBA like last year, Don Schiffelbean. They've got it like they run. I can't remember what he told me couple hundred several tens of thousands of head and there's like eight of them involved like okay, yeah, our, our bill gates uh quarter million acres of agland is that a family farm the gates family yeah i mean what about ted turner's two million acres is that a family farm is that a family ranch like so when when some of these terms get thrown around like it comes back to what the management thing, like you were talking about ownership being divorced from management. I think that when I use the term family farm, I'm talking about, you know, when the family is directly involved in the management of the farm. Like for instance, an inch, like a kind of funny example of this, the, the Fort Union ranch that I was talking about earlier um, is owned by the descendants of the civil war Senator that was given the, 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 the fort, which is like a historic monument up in northeastern New Mexico. And so there's 400, 500 people who own this, this 100,000 acre ranch. Um, and there is now just for the, I think the first time, there's actually a member of the family managing the ranch. Um, and so it's like, yeah, the, the term is problematic, but uh, it's still the, you know, what were we talking about? Talking about how the, the divisions in agriculture, uh, and and the definitions around what it kind of is on our side versus not on our side i and i think there's the lines are just the lines are just too blurry and you know when you start drawing lines and and in, like, when you start breaking apart groups okay uh i guess what i want to say right now is you know how to solve racism? Let's take the race box off of every federal form. Like that's the first thing we got to do. So when you identify people as a group, you can start to collect data on them and you can make decisions about that group of people, right? So sometimes those things are a little bit dangerous when we start like othering people or we start grouping people together and yeah. say, these people need to change. Like, let's just say, hey, as as producers and consumers of food, we all need to change. Yeah, this is this is exactly the point I was trying to make. Is that like I, I think when we fall into this us them category, it gets harder to like um, find the things where there's common ground and push on those things. And I think that like arguing about our differences is less important right now than identifying like. Um, you know, this idea of the radical center that if you take two disparate groups who seem to be in opposition to each other and sit them down and uh, get them to actually talk things through, 
most of the time you find out that like the important things, they actually, there's a lot of shared agreement and like, you know, that's the, that's the, the spirit of the question I was trying to ask. Okay. I, I, I think that, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I think there's, I think you're right that there's a lot of groups that let's say the news media not me, but the news media classifies as far left or far right. And that's not really true. I think that there's a lot of extreme centrists that are talking about the same things. And the reason that we're not like all to, there's two reasons we're not together there in that center. Okay. Guns and abortion. Like those are the two <laughs> issues that they can keep us completely divided on and keep us arguing about. Oh, I hate this game so much. Yeah. So let's not talk about it. Um, <laughs> well, no, we should, we should, we should talk about the reality that like, you know, these are two issues that are intentionally used as a way to manipulate people to create division where there isn't really any so that you can keep people divided so that you can control and exploit them, you know, and it, it doesn't matter what race, it doesn't matter what, you know, like it's the, it's the haves and have not, I'm not going to get too much into politics here, but um, you know, it's okay. Bringing it back like to the agriculture, <laughs> bringing it back to the agriculture. Like, you know, I think about what I'm doing. Um, you know, we're in a, in a, the Sandia sub basin. So we're on the East side of the Sandia mountains. So we're technically part of the Rio Grande basin because there's a couple creeks that haven't run in 25 years that theoretically connect us back to the Rio Grande, but there's no way that there's water pipes ever coming up from the city to, to provide people with water. Um, the groundwater resources where we're at are dropping at two and a half feet on average um, because of domestic wells. How often? Like over what time period? Every year. Two and a half feet a year? A year, yeah. And it's real complex geology. So there's some places that dropping at 10, 20, 30 feet a year. Some places that are actually coming up. So we got fault lines. We got, I mean, the geological survey looks like tie-dye. It's, it's pretty fascinating for me, but... The, um, you if know, the reality is, well is that my community, dropping, if my water well was dropping like two, three feet a year, I'd move. Everybody in my community will lose access to potable water in the next 25 years, hands down. What's now, the, the reality of what people are doing to, to address the situation is building pipelines from the Estancia basin, which is south and east of us, which is a a closed basin that's sitting on a finger that's more like part of the Ogallala. So it's much less complex um, geology. They're also going down at a foot a year. Um, now that is primarily probably 80% of that is from center pivot agriculture. And so when I'm, you know, I'm a farmer, I get grouped in with the King's ranches, which is one family, a family farm yeah. that runs <laughs> yeah. 20 26 center pivots uh pumping out they're not metered but speculatively if you're growing an alfalfa crop 30 40 might be three acre feet per center pivot yep per and year at 160 acres minus the corners 130 some odd acres times three that is you know hundreds of millions of gallons of water that are being used to grow mostly alfalfa and corn silage to feed 
the dairy industry in Southern New Mexico, which produces the mozzarella in Texas for cheap pizza in New York. Yep. And, and my, in my opinion, you know, we're 30 years out from being, you know, the San, the Sandia Basin is probably 20 years. Um, Sandia Basin's, they say 60, the, the 2016 water plant said 65. You can do the math. They, they keep on changing the, the length that you need to prove you have a water supply to build a house lower and lower so that we can keep building houses, uh, even though there's no water to support the people who are already here. Um, that's a you know, problem for, that's a problem for future government. Yeah. Anyway, what I was trying to get at was that like, if, you know, I'm according to the rest of the world, I'm a farmer and I'm part of the problem. Right. Yep. And if I present myself as being somehow other or better than, or different from, or, um, unwilling to engage with the farmers in my community who really are part of the problem or try to pretend like farming is not part of the problem, then how are we going to, how are we going to address like the only, the only real option we have for ensuring that future generations will have access to water is figuring out how to reduce, you know, extractive groundwater mining to the point where like we don't cause subsidization to close off the aquifers and completely this is where I'm going to try to not cuss a lot, but you know, like when you suck aquifers dry, uh, they can settle out in a way that prevents them from being able to recharge. So it's not just that we're like screwing ourselves over because all the wells run dry. We're, we're interrupting the, like the water cycles in a way that can cause ecological followed by social collapse. And like, it's easy to talk about this because it's like really six towns in one, one little micro basin. It's the same problem for the entire Southwestern United States. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, and, and, I, I, I'm worried that like, you know, we're going to be arguing about whether or not no-till is better than organic or if, you know, you should be doing set stock and reducing costs to sell to the feedlots to the, to the, you know, the it's wheat fields. So well, yeah. Like we, we, we don't have, I don't think we have time to be um, so exclusive, especially when it's one, one and a half percent of the population is producing all the food. Like, I think we really need to like create a, a narrative that's a little bit less us them and talks about the principles and talks about economic viability for, for small independent family farms, whether it's family farm is like, you know, two people or it's hippie commune, whatever it is, like, you know, coming back to what you said, I like that even better. Like get away from the family farm and talk about like land ownership and management being, you know, tied together so that we don't all, like we're headed back towards like a feudal state. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And, and I actually read a bit of, um, I can't remember where I read this, but it was, it was an article that kind of seemed to indicate it, it was in response to somebody talking about how land ownership and ranching was being corporatized. And th this article seemed to suggest it's always been that way to some degree in this country like that there were groups that you know that there were businessmen that would raise money to come out here to the plains and buy a ranch and have somebody manage it for them 100 percent. that Capitalism. kind of thing yeah i mean that that's been happening forever um but getting back to unity and, and creating we need to create a culture of land stewardship exactly 
in, instead of a culture of land ownership and having dominion over the land and remaking it into what we see fit according to our flawed vision. So yeah. reconceptualize the concept of ownership in a context that isn't just exclusively based in private property rights. Like a real theory of natural rights has to include both communal rights and, you know, um, it's not talked about quite as explicitly, but it's sort of implied underneath that is what I might call like natural rights. Like in my instance, I have a right to use my well. Like I own property, I have a well, I have legal right to pump water out of the ground. My neighbors also have a, that right to have access to water. And if we all don't collectively realize that there's a natural limit to how much water you can pump out of the ground before you kill your aquifer, um, then the, the rights of nature will assert themselves by collapsing the aquifer and leaving us all without an access to potable water. You know, so like, can we associate ownership with not just entitlement, but responsibility? You know, if you own land, it's not just that you get to do whatever you want with it. So you're responsible for making sure that you're, what you're doing on your land isn't negatively impacting either the community or the greater ecosystem that generates the food, the water, the air, everything that everybody, including us, depend upon. It's a great idea and I fully support it. And I've, I've had these thoughts all myself. But yeah, we're, go, go talk to a Senate hearing community about that and you get laughed out of the room. And that's <laughs> where we're less so now. Less so now. I think even I think even the powers of the beer are starting to catch on. Like, you know, you when I heard Bill Sack, uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, gave a talk last year at the National Farmers Union Convention, and it was fascinating to hear like him talking about things like nutrient cycling and closed um, you know, closed circuit uh you know local economy and how the importance of local and regional agriculture and redundancy and all this other stuff it was also really weird and dystopic to hear him in the same sentence talk about competitive advantage in global commodity marketplaces and ensuring that we're aggressively expanding access for american commodity producers into foreign markets and the whole like food as a geopolitical weapon nonsense right after he's talking about like saving the family farm and building local economies like man this is this is weird but at least it's part of the conversation now yeah yeah i would i want to circle back to water because i'm not I, oh please do now my frame of reference for the whole water rights irrigation discussion just just i don't have a dog in the fight okay i don't have an irrigation well my creeks are spring fed so the ranch the ranch sits at the top of the watershed okay almost all of it flows north into one watershed i've got just a little bit that goes south and a little bit that goes east into another creek but for the most part i'd say probably 75 percent of my ranch all drains north through two creeks so I'm at the top of the watershed. Like I know what elevation my creeks are at. I know where I can go when I can find water. Like if I, if I drill a well and I get 10 gallons a minute here, that's a pretty decent well, which is good enough for me. Cause that's all I, you know, 10 gallons a minute is enough to water cow, cows out of. So when I'm talking about water and water rights, I just want everybody to understand that's where I'm coming from. Okay. I have friends 20, 30 miles away that irrigate. 
that are in a water management district um, for something called the rattlesnake, which goes up to Quivera National Wildlife Refuge, if anybody cares. I've known people that, that are on that water management board and talk to them. I've talked to a lot of people that are, you know, out West and get irrigation water out of the Colorado river basin, whether it's upper or lower, nobody really wants to talk on record about it. And and that's fine. There's, it's, it's one of those huge complex problems, kind of like we were just, you know, like we've been talking about for the last, I don't know, 20 minutes, you know, yes, I have a right to use the water that's on my land. I have a right to use some of the water that runs through my land. My neighbor also has a right to that water that's coming down the creek. Okay. I have a duty to my neighbor to not screw up that water, to not pollute that water because his cattle need to use it just as much as mine do. So when I start, so when I kind of start thinking about like irrigation in the Colorado River Basin, okay unlimited pumping or you know we've got the senior water right that goes back however many years that we can use all these acre feet of water there's no incentives to use them efficiently there's no buyback if the opposite can. yeah there's no buy yeah they're incentivized to use all of it they possibly can as cheaply as they can in an inefficient manner like that's the reality of it and if you don't use your full allocation because you've made efficiency improvements and upgrades, well, they'll just cut your allocation for next year. And nobody wants that. So nobody invests in. So that's why there's not a lot of investments in efficiency upgrades or more responsible water usage. And you know, no matter where you go up and down Colorado River Basin in irrigation, everybody's just trying to do the same thing. I'm just trying to grow some crops. I'm just trying to grow some cows. I'm just trying to feed the world. I'm just trying to make a living. And all those decisions, when viewed at the individual scale, are fine and they make sense. But then when you take all those decisions and you look, lump them together and see what effect that's causing on the environment, that's bad. But I have absolutely no earthly idea on how to unwind the, the water rights mess that is the Colorado River Basin. I just know that it's going to be going to be bad. And the Ogallala Aquifer and the High Plains yeah, Aquifer and irrigation up. on the plains, we're no different. Like, it, it, it is no different. There's no incentive structure to use less water, be more efficient, or to keep it in the ground. And, and I don't think the lawyers are going to get it sorted out in the next three years, you know? No. <laughs> um, no. And I think while there's these big problems, I think um, I like to always try to focus my energies, especially when it comes to like politics into something where there is potential for real impact. Um you know, global problems, local solutions, like the solution to the interstate stream compact isn't going to get sorted out by a bunch of water bureaucrats and water lawyers in Denver and, uh, you know, LA and Phoenix, like arguing with each other, like look at something like the, uh, the San Luis Valley, 
and Luis Valley has amazing aquifer underneath it, overdrafting it to an extreme, extreme degree. And they've set up like these local um, water districts that are, you know, five or six years in, maybe even 10 years in now, but trying to figure out how you get water governance to, um, at a local level, like in New Mexico, we have a lot of, uh, acequias and the acequia model is like, a what's that? You know, there, an acequia is a ditch. It's the Arabic word for ditch that was imported with Spain back in the day. Okay. Uh, and some of the acequias are actually ditches that were built by indigenous people before the Spanish even showed up. It's basically diverting water out of a surface river to feed irrigated land. Um, but there's a governance model around how ditches are managed that is really fascinating and is totally the opposite of what the sort of top-down interstate stream compact um, approach is. And it's based on an adaptive approach to communal management of a vital resource everybody is dependent upon. You know, it's hard now because like we've re-plumbed the entire Western United States originally to the end of producing power so we can make aluminum to bomb the Nazis. Um, but the, you know, the long-term impacts of that are that we have half the produce in the country coming out of two counties in the middle of a desert in Southern Colorado and, you know, like mega alfalfa farms in Scottsdale exporting, you know, alfalfa to feed the Saudi Saudi Arabian dairy industry. Like it, like that shit is so crazy. Um, you know, it's, it's, sometimes interesting and often infuriating to try to have conversations about how you deal with that sort of level thing. And I've been uh, having those conversations recently with a bunch of different farmers because I do a lot with the farmers union and uh, trying to generate policy recommendations around that stuff is, it's hard, but um, you know, I think the real solutions are like have to come at, they have to address not only the demand side, but we have to think about the supply like everybody's like, oh, well, we're gonna we're gonna invest billions of dollars into using nuclear power to do desalination to uh, whatever. It's like we actually have this amazing nuclear generator producing unlimited amounts of free energy that desalinates the entire oceans all the time, and then transports the water in these like incredible, you know, global transportation veins through clouds. And then we have this like really cool biotechnology we can use to actually influence the way that the surface temperature interacts with the air pressure to cause rain. And those are called plants. And like, then we have these, these arteries that recirculate all of the water through these really cool things called streams and rivers and like the aquifer systems that feed back into those streams and create surpluses for long-term security. And like, none of that's even part of the conversation. You know, it's like, let's build dams and, uh, you know, put pipes and concrete and get a bunch of engineers involved. Like the engineers are going to be able to do better than billions of years of evolution. Like <laughs> you guys are smoking something. Like I think the real solutions are when people start taking care of their soils and there's more plants growing and we're sequestering carbon while cooling the surface of the earth in a way that causes more rain to fall. And then that rain is absorbed into the topsoil filters down into the aquifers, recharges the streams, the streams flow into the rivers, Let's get the, get the chemicals out of the rivers so that the riparian zones can, you know, rehabilitate. Let's use animals to improve the health of the riparian zones by either mimicking predators with the use of fences and dogs and cowboys, or like actually get predators back in there to move all the animals around. 
and like make the the supply side of the water equation like come back to life. So it's my hopeful maybe pie in the sky dream of how to address these things. But I think the only dams that should be built anymore are beaver dam analogs. Yeah. One rock dam it. Yep. Yep. I, you know, I have two beaver colonies on the ranch. Oh, that's awesome. And they're both on the same Creek and as dry as it was, as dry as it was back in May, I, so we were dealing with the drought like everybody else in the, in the plains in the Southwest. But for us, you know, it started raining for y'all about beginning early May, right? This year, yeah. Yeah. Some friends in Western Kansas, they said about the same thing. Mine didn't come till the end of May. And I was down there at my beaver ponds a week before it started raining. And I couldn't tell we were in a drought. I couldn't tell it hadn't rained in nine months. Like the creek was full. There was water going over the dam. There was all kinds of green plants down there. I mean, it was just a little narrow strip of green right down the creek, but that was it. Creek on the west side that does not have beavers in it, but I still need to go get rid of some trees off that creek. It wasn't doing quite as good. It kind of quit running, but uh, I like to go to the mountains. I mean, who doesn't like to go to the mountains? It's only eight, nine hours away to the, to the San Juans, like Ure, Telluride, Silverton. I just sold my Jeep. I had a Jeep Rubicon. And Did you have the diesel? No, I didn't have a diesel. When I bought mine, they didn't have the diesel. They didn't get, I think they didn't come out with the diesel till 19 or 20, and I got one of the first 18s. Well, you dodged a bullet. I had a buddy who had one, and he said it was not, not that great. I had a, a friend of mine got one a year or two after in a, in a Ram 1500. And I know it, it spent quite a bit of time in the shop for the first two or three years of its life. But since then, it's been a fairly reliable vehicle. Dodge. I'm a Dodge guy. Like you walk outside and there's like four of them out in the yard. So it's, yeah, I know what I'm getting. Anyway, <laughs> anyway ma- mountains, I'm going to start talking about trucks. It's probably not. <laughs> um, no, one of my favorite things to do. I mean, and we, we took that Jeep out there every summer, three years in a row. Didn't make it out there this year. Um, but it amazed me the first year we went out there, didn't hardly see any beaver dams. And then you start looking in the last couple of years we went out there. It's like, there's more beaver out here. This is cool. And then you start to, then you start to kind of get an eye to look and be like, this is good beaver habitat. There should be beavers here. And then you come back a year later and there's beaver dams there. It is mind boggling to think about how this fad in European aristocratic, like high society, uh, the ecological impacts of people thinking it was cool to wear a beaver on their head 300 years ago, completely changed the entire hydrology of North America. And like, there's still people, there's still government programs for going out and removing beavers. I'm like, man, that is crazy. Like we should get beavers everywhere. It is, it is how you slow water in a way that like feeds the, feeds the system. It's the, you know, the health of everything is related to controlling the temperature of water. The temperature of water is related to the flow mechanisms. And, um, there's a guy named, uh, 
Oh, I'm blanking on it now. Victor Schrauberg wrote a book called Our Senseless Toil, which was never published. Uh, he's an Austrian uh, forester uh, from like 100 years ago um, that I've been nerding out on pretty hard. And it's like changed the way I think about water cycles a lot. I don't think that we will ever understand how bad we broke the hydrology of North America when we killed all the beavers, when we started killing the beavers 300 years ago for the beaver hat craze, it's in the early 17, 1800s. I think the thing that'll make people understand it is when, you know, ranchers and farmers start paying the government to put beavers back on their farms. And then when we give it a decade after that and people start to see, holy shit, like that's how that's supposed to work. Okay. Um, so maybe we reduce the amount of land that we're cultivating by 20%, but every problem we've had that we've been trying to find patchwork fixes for, um, as a result of this fence line, defense line, take out all the beavers, clear all the land, maximize extraction mentality. When we go, you know, if we can get back to a place where it's let, let nature do most of the work for us. And we're just the stewards who are just observing and making little tweaks to try to accommodate what we want to get out of it um, without taking so much that it's constantly requiring us putting more and more and more and more back into it, then people will start to appreciate that more. I was, I was sitting here thinking about, okay, what sort of legal protection could come from the government? And yeah, I know that sounds really weird for me to be talking about a solution coming from government for a problem that anybody has as a viable alternative. Um, I'm just thinking what would happen if the government said beavers are now a protected species. You're not allowed to kill one. If one is a nuisance, you're required to relocate it. I, I don't want to oppose anything that might be part of a solution. I also think the prohibitions never work. And if you tell farmers that they can't do something, they're going to um, do they're it. They're going to say, yeah, sure, boy. So, you know, I think like a cultural shift around like getting and being able to demonstrate to more people how having healthy riparian areas means that you have more water for your livestock it means that there is more, um, you know, wildlife habitat that helps deal with, you know, integrated pest management. And if you have birds, birds are the, like the sign of, you know, the, the canary in the mine. Like if your birds are doing good, the land is doing good. If your bees are doing good, the land is doing good. What do they need? They need places. They need habitat. Where's a lot of that habitat? It's near the water. All right. Like what do beavers do? They create habitat near water, <laughs> you know? And so if you, you gotta, if you can get that sort of circular thinking and get away from this linear, how do we extract the maximum out of what we have and turn it into money, uh, which is sort of the driving mentality behind everything and start thinking about how do we create, you know, sort of, um, you know, we're in a mode of like entropy where things are just kind of moving in a, in a not terribly great direction, like shifting into like syntropy where instead of a linear direction into the shit show, we're in a circular direction kind of going, going up and everything like working together in a way that creates positive feedback loops instead of negative feedback loops. You know, once you can demonstrate that people catch on. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that with like, old school good old boys being like no this re this whatever you want to call it regenerative stuff like i don't have to buy fertilizer i don't have to do that 
I don't have to do that. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll grow the cover crops. I'll birds are good. If I put in some bushes next to the field, then I don't get as much dust blown at my house. And my wife likes the songbirds like, all right, yeah, sure. And I'll get an NRCS grant for it. Yeah. Get on board. And then the more the mainstream picks up that sort of like, okay, like this isn't crazy. This is how we've been producing food for the 10,000 years before the last 75 years when the government got involved. Um, sorry, another rant. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Before the government got involved, I think, I mean, I, I don't think I'd say we had a efficient functioning food system before the government got involved. There's a lot of waste. And I think that there's always going to be waste in a food system. And a, a, oh, quote, a quote just, just surfaced in my mind, something, a conversation I was having with my wife yesterday. It's being able to accept less than perfect as a result. And that's, I think that's something that a lot of folks in regenerative agriculture would have in common. We're okay to accept a result of less than perfect or less than what we thought it would be, as long as it's moving in the right direction. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. And I, um, I have a fun little, uh, so I got to hang out a little bit last weekend with, uh, my friend Roy Foltzcraft, who I think you've uh, spoken with before yes, and we're, yes. we're hanging out at the, the Irish pub after the convention. And the, uh, he was telling us that he's got a new crop he's working on and, uh, he's got some, some sort of rice. He's trying to dry land farm rice in Northeastern Colorado, uh, which gets a lot of funny, funny looks from the neighbors. Um, and if you guys don't know Roy, he's a, he's a conventional, but very regenerative dry land grain farmer, uh, way out in the sticks, like almost in Nevada. And, but he's, I think he had four, six inches a year of precipitation last year. He's grown 10 different crops. So he got this rice and he grew five acres of it. And we were, he was telling us all about it. He had to go to this crazy guy's house and, uh, in California and they didn't want to ex- let him export the seed. So it was kind of like hush hush. And then he got, he got it and he grew five acres and, uh, total failure, like amaranth just, a foot and a half tall. If you dug down through the amaranth, there was like a little bit of sprouts of the, of the rice plants. I was like, Oh, so, so you think you're going to try that again? And he's like, Oh hell yeah. I'm doing 15 acres this year. And <laughs> as like that mentality of like, you know, failure is not really failure. It's just, um, it's just an opportunity to learn. And everything in agriculture is about like, in, in regenerative agriculture, especially like pushing the envelope a little bit, seeing how much you can nudge things into a different direction, uh, knowing that half the time you're going to, it's not going to work and you're going to have to learn and learn again. So did you know that fail is an acronym? I didn't first attempt in learning. There you go. I like that. Yeah. So just reframe that. Everybody reframe that in your head. Fail is an acronym. First attempt in learning. Yeah, like nothing that we're doing today on this farm is anything that we would have thought we were going to be doing um, eight years ago when we started. The whole business plan has changed. Everything has changed. Well, let's let's talk about that. I mean, we've been talking for over an hour and I haven't really talked about anything important yet. Um, so start, where did you go to college? Uh, Champlain Valley with a school called Middlebury. Middlebury, don't, Connecticut? Don't, 
No, that's uh, in Vermont in the Vermont. Champlain Valley. Uh, it's a little liberal arts school. Okay. I um, I actually, you're the second person I know that went to Middlebury. I'll, I'll, we'll talk after about, about the other one. Um, so what did you... I was going to say, don't judge me. I, I did not enjoy the majority of the people I went to school with. It's a, but I won't get into that. It's a good school. I got a good education. Um, what was your degree in? African politics. My degree actually says international studies with a disciplinary focus in political science, a regional focus in Africa and a linguistic focus in French. But I usually just say African politics. Interesting. Okay. So you went from there to the world of brewing. Uh, spirits first. I got a job at a company called Whistle Pig, which was a little town called Shoreham, which is about 15 minutes from where I went to school. Um, one of my one of my buddies from college I got guy I played rugby with was the first intern. Uh, so he got me a, a spot. As the second intern, um, and that's also how I got into agriculture. There was uh, the company was based on a derelict dairy farm, um, and I had, having grown up on a horse ranch and done some landscaping, I was considered the most qualified person to uh, develop the farm operation, which was kind of a joke because there was like a handful of locals that were grew up in in farming and had managed farms but I had a college degree, so they put me in charge. So I got to learn by trying to, it was, it was actually pretty interesting because I had to, I was in charge, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I had to go to the folks that were supposed to be working for me and say, can you, can you teach me? Can you like show me what I'm doing? And we developed the farm as basically a marketing front for selling imported Canadian bootleg. Well, not bootleg is actually at one point it kind of was bootleg, but I, I don't Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you'll have to tell me that story some other time. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of really crazy stories there. So let tell me how you got from making spirits and bootleg and shine down from Canada to having a to to having your butcher shop. How'd that happen? Um, so working on the farm, we were. Uh, you know, I started reading guys like Joel Salatin, um, you know, Wes Jackson, uh, Gene Lawson, uh, you know, just got really into like agrarianism, um, partially because like, you know, studying, I spent basically five, six years really delving into the question of like, why do people kill each other? Like, why is there like, why do we as a species like intentionally um, deprive other populations of our own species of access to resources uh, to the end of annihilating them and like why like all this, these sort of basic questions of like what is the driving force behind um, politics and behind conflict and war and genocide and all these like terrible things uh, and the only thing that I and, and this is not something I'll tell you at school everybody this was my own conclusion that it always comes back to land um, and land is not just a resource, but it's like a spiritual concept and it's deeply connected to water. Um, and so that realization, that was as close as I could get to before I was like, I just don't want to study about this stuff anymore. I'm going to start transitioning towards like, what am I going to do about it? Um, so agriculture was like 
the art of managing land, of stewarding land. So that was where that sort of interest grew up out of. Um, so I developed a vision around like, you know, basically had a guy with millions of dollars, this crazy half Irish, half Indian entrepreneur dude gave me carte blanche to design the, the supermodel of regenerative agriculture that was going to revitalize local economies and bring back the great American nation. And we were going to do a bus tour around the country to tell everybody about it. And it was, yeah, it was a 23 pretty heady time. So, um, so I got to sort of, we got cattle, we started doing rotational grazing. I was designing crop rotations, hiring, you know, uh, custom workers to grow, come in and grow different, you know, we're trying to grow rye to make rye whiskey. Um, but you can't just grow rye. And so started engaging with the local agricultural community more. And, um, at some point that, that ended in a two and a half million dollars of legal fees lawsuit between the board and the owner that I got subpoenaed by both sides and left and it was toxic and corporate takeover. And, um, they still just import (laughs) Canadian whiskey, even though they're now growing the rye and they have all the stuff they bring yada, yada. So I left, uh, I got a job at a distillery that was actually making, um, whiskey worked, uh, ended up going back and having one of my buddies at the distillery, um, load up some of the grain that I had grown that was just rotting in a barn. Uh, cause the, the new, the new guy was like, I will not sell you this grain. I'd rather it rot and go bad than let one of my competitors have it. And it was like, you're a dick, Jeff. Um, <laughs> so, so I got some of it anyways. We made some whiskey, uh, worked there for a couple of years. Um, you know, was doing a cool project with like collaborating with another business next door that was doing uh, sunflower oil production and they were looking for people to grow sunflowers. I was looking for people to grow rye. I had a friend who had a farm that was trying to do, you know, regenerative stuff. So we designed like this crop rotation and then uh, where they would do like some, some flowers. Uh, they did a lot of bees. Um, we would grow rye in the winter. Uh, they were contracting with some folks to come in and graze it really cool experimental like i didn't know what i was doing but i learned a lot um that ended up kind of going away the uh the owner of the distillery had we had some differences so it ended well but kind of moved on to the next thing went from there to uh cider production there was a company that was making trying to use like uncultivated apples to do um more like old school old world hard, hard cider so I spent a while, I'd, I'd worked with them like seasonally for a few years because we were neighbors. We actually met when I was working at the whiskey company and I got to go on a, on a tour of all the cider regions in the world with them to, they were importing cider, but then they also wanted to make their own. So I helped with the, the exploratory part for the imports and then uh, went around and did the lost apple project where we'd find the cool varieties of apples that were kind of forgotten and use them to make like really, really good cider. Um, and then just got to the point of being like, I'm done living on the East coast. There's too many people here. Uh, that was right around the same time that my, my grandpa was house ridden or housebound and then bedridden. So I was going back to help, help my brother and my mom take care of my grandpa. Um, my older brother was in Afghanistan at that point. He got back, got a discharge honorably and, um, grandpa passed away and said, let's go for it. So bought out my aunts and uncles and, started i think the first year we did 
row crops and a quarter acre of row crops and a quarter acre of mixed vegetables. And we planted a half acre of, you know, apples and peach trees. And, uh, we had chickens and ducks and turkeys and cows and sheep and pigs. And, um, we had 12 people living on the farm, bunch of volunteers, like, you know, staying up till two o'clock in the morning, every night, big bonfires and like really awesome, like really great time. And then like year two, it's like, okay. Nope. Sounds like what are, what, are, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. And so like within two years, it was like pigs and chickens. That's it. Um, and then uh, the really dialed in on the pigs and that sort of uh, has gone through a whole bunch of iterations, you know, started out buying, buying shoats, buying like wiener, wiener pigs from a, from a farm about an hour South of us. And uh, we were thinking just to finish them out. We had a, a guy who had a sausage making company, uh, so we we were operating on his license so we're running a sausage cart we we're taking uh taking our pigs into a usda plant and then having this other guy turn them into sausage which is also how i got into butchering because it turns out most people have never seen a carcass before in the meat industry so um that shut down couldn't get a kitchen in our area set up because of zoning issues had to go to the farmer's market model uh, ran into a bunch of problems with USDA access for processing, ended up hauling hogs to Colorado every week for like two, three years. Um, yeah, started trying to figure that out, got a kitchen, got a guy that would slaughter animals under inspection, but wouldn't process them. So we set up our own kitchen. Uh, they wouldn't approve the kitchen because we didn't have a retail component. So we built the retail component and then now we're trying to expand it and they don't want to allow us to expand because we're apparently meats, not food. According to my County government, go figure. <laughs> Man, that sounds like a mess. Oh yeah. So man, it sounds like government just doesn't want you to sell any food. Just, it just sounds like they're just trying, trying to keep, what's the deal? Why, why are there so many roadblocks or is it just, stupid local ordinances well the stuff that we're running into is all very local um we live i think i mentioned that i might have grown up in the country but i now live in suburbia like this is the hottest real estate development zone in the state right now um but you didn't move just towns grew around albuquerque is like 30 minutes away and albuquerque currently has uh crime levels similar to like Detroit, Baltimore, you know, third world country stuff almost. It's it's pretty gnarly. Um, so a lot of people were trying to get out of the city, but all the jobs are in the city because they don't like to permit any businesses happening. They prefer to have like sleeper bedroom communities out in the out in the countryside. Um, so there's a there's a lot of you know I run a I run a commercial hog farm. Um, in an area where they would like to see a house on every two acres and people are currently paying, you know, half a million dollars for like a three bedroom on two acres out here. It's it's insane. From the city manager point of view, like having all residential and a few shops, that's, that's ideal. You don't have to deal with dirty industry. You don't have to deal with the pollution, the waste. You know, you don't have to make sure everybody has a job because they're driving back to Albuquerque or into Santa Fe to their yeah. to their yuppie filing cabinet for their job, or they're sitting at home doing it on Zoom like we're doing now. Yep. 
Yeah, that, that's they're they're looking at the thirty thousand foot view, and if you talk to them privately one on one about local food and about what you wanted to do and about how you're feeding your neighbors and feeding your community, they'd be one hundred percent supportive in private on one on one. But get them in that budget meeting. We need more tax revenue. We need we need to keep we need to increase yeah. growth in this area. We're only growing yeah. 10 percent. Yeah. And they're I mean, I like actually like I'd like to start with saying that when I talk about the government, there I have like a deep, a deep level of hatred and I despise it. Um I'm also friends with a lot of people in the government because I have to deal with them all the time and like that's true at uh county state and federal level my biggest allies in this whole thing have been the food safety inspection service enforcement guys who are the meat police who are responsible for the situation we are in when it comes to meat processing but they are the guys who have helped us out more than anybody else along the way um so there's there's some tension there like at the county level um there's folks that like are really pushing and like our current commissioner uh we just got uh raw milk and ungraded eggs legalized for sale in the county and they are pushing for like doing ecosystem management on riparian areas and there's a lot of really good things happening so i have to say that while also then saying that like the county government is my like the the epitome of what is evil about government it's like we are going to take your money and then we are going to impose rules that deprive you of all of your basic liberties so that a handful of people who aren't don't even live here can make exorbitant amounts of profit and we don't give a shit about what happens after we're done like you know we're here to make sure that we extract the most out of you and your community as possible and colonize and just destroy what's good about the place you live in so that people can make money and I, it pisses me off you know but that's just the county government. Then you go up one level, like the state level, trying to get the state meat inspection program back online because we lost 90 plus percent of the inspected processing capacity in the state when the feds shut down the state meat program in 2007. That has been a two and a half year debacle, which again highlights sort of the, like literally they funded it two years ago. They developed a good program but they can't get that legislation passed because one dude on the committee slept with the other dude's wife and he's pissed about it. So he's, you know, <laughs> torpedoed the program just in spiteful small town politics nonsense. What? Um, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, but to come back to your question about why the government doesn't want us to sell food. Like I'm going to focus in on the federal meat inspection. Um, because that's what I know the most about and understand, I think, how it, some of the reasons for be, why it is the way it is. You know, when we switched from the um, prioritizing sort of food security to what people refer to as cheap food policies, um, the, the difference between the quote unquote efficiency at the little slaughterhouse where we take our animals versus um i think kansas is more like national beef right like the the big the beef big meat packer plants out there process oh five thousand five thousand head a day uh yeah the big plants out here in western kansas are like 
four to six thousand a day. Um, yeah. I know the big one out at Holcomb that I drive by probably the most often. Um, I think IBP built that back in the nineties, and it's it's a Tyson. Tyson bought him out. Um, I think they run sixty one hundred a day. Yeah, it's twenty hours. Yeah, just you got what 353 foot reefer trailers in the parking lot that come and go every day um so there's this idea that by embracing this model um it's more air quotes efficient um, because you eliminate the labor costs everything is highly automated highly capitalized um you know you instead of a dollar per pound or two dollars per pound or four dollars per pound for the processing it's three cents seven cents um which enable like so there's a couple of things that go into it one everybody loves cheap food this is a political reality that goes back to the romans bread and circuses give people cheap food you maintain political power if you don't give people cheap food it's hard to maintain political power that's a tough one to get best secondarily post even going back to world war one uh you know there's a big push on using food as a, a form of soft power um so when you can export food to another country and you make another country dependent on cheap food that you're producing and then flooding their markets with um they can't do anything that'll piss you off because you can say oh well we control your food supply yeah, so it works both at a domestic level by controlling the food supply. You control people international level. Same thing. The way to do that is by, they say reducing, I would say externalizing costs. Um, and so we've pushed, we've embraced wholesale, this like corporate commodity globalized food system. So the meat processing world, the, the rules that they rolled out, which is called the HACCP program, hazard analysis, critical control point plan, something like that is a, is, is designed by these big meat passing meat processing plants. Um, it gives them the flexibility to be able to do what they need to do to eliminate costs and in, maximize efficiency um, while having this customized food safety plan that then gets reviewed by the federal government and they determine whether or not it is sufficient to, ensure that the food is being processed safely. So they said, this is the system we're going to use for governing um, food safety around meat processing. And when they rolled that out, they said uniform enforcement. Everybody's going to it. One size fits all. You're responsible for designing your own food safety plan that we can then either approve or deny. We don't have to tell you why we deny it if we do. There's no clear written... Like, this is what you have to do. There's nine categories that you have to address. But it's sort of a, you know, so so the way that... We're not going to tell you how to do it, but if you get it wrong, we're going to screw you on it pretty bad. It's the it's the bring me a rock. Like, you bring me rocks until I say that one works. And, I mean, I've worked with... Um, there was a guy who worked at Food Safety Inspection Services, which is the part of the USDA that oversees the program, who... Uh, quit in protest um, because he would just got sick of having the the sort of political pressure to use this um, this mechanism to put people out of business. 
Um, and it's the idea that if the, the small independent guys are bad, they're not safe, it's inefficient because if you have to send an inspector to a plant that processes four head versus a plant that processes 6,000 head, it's a waste of public resources. Um, we just don't need these small processing plants. And I think that there's the government part. I think a lot of it is actually driven by consumers and a, a cultural shift that says, we don't want to deal with mortality. We don't want to deal with death. We want to separate. I, I like, we don't want to see carcasses. We want everything clean and wrapped in plastic and not be reminded on a daily basis that we too will also die. Um, I think that's sort of some of the psychology underneath it, but the actual regulatory mechanism that has pushed this consolidation is this, um, you know, this food safety, food safety, again, in air quotes, it's really about um, facilitating corporate production, commodity production to make sure that we are competitive in the global marketplace and that we are exercising global dominance. Um, and then also making sure that people don't have the ability to be independent and provide what they need because independent people that don't need the government aren't subservient to the government and keep the government in check from being able to fully accomplish the agenda of their corporate sponsors is, you know, not to get too conspiratorial on it, but that's sort of the way I see it. Well, I mean, politics is food. Food is politics to a certain extent. If you control the, if you give the people cheap food, they're going to keep, you know, Oh, that, that political party or this government kept food cheap. We're going to keep them in power. So we don't have to spend as much on food. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, trying to localize food systems and shorten supply chains. The more we do that, the more it hurts corporate profits, the more it hurts corporate profits, the more they're going to want to pay their lobbyists to shut us down. So they recapture that whole, that whole circular profit externalizing costs. Okay, great. You know, let's, let's, let's just continue down this road and put all of our animals in feedlots and haul them alfalfa, corn, and soybeans. Great. That's fine. And let's do that all with diverted Colorado river water, or we're going to pump our aquifers dry to do that because we got to feed the world. Food has to be cheap. And everybody that's involved in the current system is making so much money off doing it. I say making money off doing it, I wouldn't say everybody. There's like a handful of people who are making all the money. Right. And the handful of people that are making all the money, they don't ever put farmer in their job description title when they're filling out a block on something, right? Like these are the guy who's making the money. Where where does all the federal subsidy money end up that goes to crop insurance, that grows to any crop programs? It doesn't go to farmers. There's no farmer or rancher getting wealthy off government subsidies. We are pass-through agents. Most of us are on leased land, and we are yeah. pass-through agents for federal subsidies to go enrich the big ag chemical corporations and the big seed corporations. Or the or the banks that underwrite the policies that got sold as the low-interest loans to make sure you can keep farming that you now pay all of your money to. <laughs> yep. And, you know, because we got to have this 
because we all had to get bigger, get out. We had to go to the bank and get more land. We had to go to the bank and get more money. So Two and a half machine. million dollars of equipment. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're, you know, and now they're stuck in a situation where it's hard for them. It's hard for an operator to change right now. That's got a big bank load against him. That's been farming the same way for 20 years. That's on at least half. That's on at least 50% leased land with absentee owners. Maybe there's on a, maybe they're on a cash rent or a share crop basis. You go convince a landowner in Chicago that's owned 160 acres of farm ground and a family deal with like six other people. Go tell them that you're not going to raise 240 bushel corn next year, that you're going to plant cover crops. They're going to tell you you're nuts and they're going to take it away from you and give it to another guy that's going to continue to do the same thing. So as long as food stays cheap and corporations can continue to externalize costs, the government gets to provide people with cheap food all the while while we're feeding this, I hate to say circular economy, but it is kind of circular, right? We eat crap food that makes us sick. So we go get healthcare and get perpetual treatment for the chronic conditions that are caused by the crap food that we eat. Oh man. Yeah. Now we're getting into <laughs> it. Well, before we go down that rabbit hole, which I really want to go down, cause I think food is medicine and like, it's been really eye opening moving beyond our own operation and sort of middlemaning for a couple hundred other people, how much like food changes people's lives. Like the reason that I'm still going at this point is there's like a couple hundred no, maybe there's like a couple dozen people that buy all the food from the store that we run. And, uh, you know, every time I think like I've had it, I'm done with this. I'm like, I can't take this shit anymore. Um, somebody comes in and is like, you know, you saved my life, right? I'm like, damn it. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to go keep working on figuring out an option for USDA inspected slaughter so we can keep going. And, um, but I wanted to come back to something you said earlier. It's actually said several times. Um, this idea that corporate agriculture feeds the world and that regenerative agriculture will never be able to feed the world. Like, it's so fascinating to me. There's so many assumptions in here. One, that industrial corporate commodity agriculture can feed the world. Like I would call that into question right now. We provide enough caloric input for people, but we're not providing, you know, globally, we don't actually produce the nutritional content we need to keep people healthy and alive. The caloric input to keep you alive, but like there's not nutritional value to actually keep people from dying in mass and like from preventable things. So we already there in the absolute most absurd time in human history to be alive because we have obese people that are quote in poverty that has never happened any other time in human history would you have people living in poverty that are morbidly obese yeah, yeah. so there's there's some there's some nuance here Besides looking at just like the the real nutritional value of the food that's coming out of the the commodity systems and the quote unquote conventional agriculture, um, there's also like 
what, 60 years, I think there's the, the forecast that it, conventional cropping systems will completely cease to function 60 years from now, no matter how much chemicals you put into it and how many bioengineered products and whatever, there's just not enough life left in the soil to continue going the way we're going. Like saying that conventional agriculture feeds the world. It's like when it's not currently producing the nutritional value people need and past one lifetime from now, it won't function at all. How can you ask the question, but can it feed the world implying that conventional agriculture does also like, you know, <laughs> what you were saying earlier, uh, you know, I almost want to get away from conventional, like let's talk from like extractive agriculture, agriculture that is just pump pulling things out of a system versus less extractive or sustainable or regenerative agriculture, which is kind of living off of the, the surplus, right? Like living off the interest instead of the, um, the principle, um, you know, that <laughs> on every every way you look at it is more productive, more efficient, like on both a total yield per acre, like, you know, it's hard, it's hard to find examples that hold up because it takes, you know, decades of good management to be able to demonstrate this. But like, you know, you see it, um, one straw revolution, Fukuoma is like Japanese farmer that practiced dryland grass farm. Uh, rice farming in Japan with like integrated animals pooping in it and orchards and is, you know, his farm produces as much or more rice than the conventional rice patties with all the fertilizers and everything. So like saying that you can't produce the same amount using regenerative practices is not true. It's just harder. It takes longer. It takes more management inputs. And then if you want to like really get crazy about it, look at how much food you can produce on a quarter acre with a bunch of people who know what they're doing. You know, yeah. China, like China sustained population levels way beyond what we're dealing with for a very long time using or like totally organic regenerative, uh, you know, agricultural methods. Like there, you can absolutely feed the world using, using non-extractive agricultural methods. Like it's the only way you can feed the world ultimately long-term. So, you know, let's, let's, let's get rid of this myth that conventional agriculture, especially when half the food that is coming out of those systems gets either burned or thrown away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and like I said earlier, I'm not, I, I should actually probably be, you know, worth what I'm saying and go find this research and read it. So I know what I'm talking about, but I'm pretty sure that I've seen it said that small scale, small scale, sustainable agriculture is responsible for, between 75 and 80 percent of the world's calories and nutrients and i believe that i I'm i bet it's i bet it's changing rapidly i bet that number changes like five percent a year or something but and, and that's entirely possible my argument is is industrialized extractive food systems have never fed the world and will never feed the world because the energy is not there the synthetic energy is not there to manufacture the synthetic fertility to transport it yeah i mean you can produce nitrogen like haber bosch process is pretty amazing um but like you can't grow food just with nitrogen like you need phosphorus at least and the phosphorus is coming out of a mine that's like rapidly you know getting tapped out and that doesn't even go into the 
12 other things that are part of the sort of biological cycles, which create the fertility that we need to grow the food. Like, you know, nobody's talking about boron and all the other things that I'm just now starting to learn about, but I won't if try to nerd out too much. mining phosphate from the ground, we'd be digging up bat shit in caves because that's the other natural sort of phosphate of, of, of phosphate is bad. Why can't, why can't we just get all the chickens out of cages on concrete floors and out into the fields? You know, chickens produce it naturally. You give them, you give them grass or grain or whatever. They poop it out. (laughs) Zach, I get it. I mean, I get it. It makes sense. I think, I think enough, I think a lot of people do, you know, I think we're at a point where like, even the, even the, the, the diehard old guys that really are bought into the system and might have really serious challenges being able to actually make this transition because like they have the reality that they've got a $2 million interest payment on their land and their fertilizer and their operating loans and their $5 million worth of equipment and blah, 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 blah. Even those guys are like, Oh yeah. Uh, this isn't really working anymore. You know, the federal government's even starting to be like, okay, we got to, we got to get away from this strictly commodity based thing. Like when we're starting to see 40% of the Iowa grain crop going out in one gust of wind, like the derechos, like the, you know, the drought that has been racking everybody. The like, um, I think that there is the, the, the buildup of, of sort of communal consciousness around how screwed we are and how imperative it is that we change the way that we do things is, is reaching a point. And what we need is like, I think what we need is a, is a, is a narrative about how to create that change that isn't like just, dis, that doesn't just disintegrate in like the damn Democrats trying to ruin our traditions and make us all drag queen baby killing, whatever it's like, Come on, guys! Like, let's 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 come up with a with a different a different story to tell each other about what we're doing here, and you know, make it something like I think the extreme right and the extreme left are going to come full circle around and shake hands at some point, and all the guys in the middle are going to be like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" Like the meat processing thing, you know, like we get a lot of vegans that come into our shop. Really, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, people appreciate that what we're doing is not industrial meat, and what they're opposed to isn't necessarily meat. We don't get any like hardcore militant vegans that are like, you know, the Paws Act Colorado sort of folks that are like, don't preg check the animals, like that sort of nonsense. It's people who have a really strong ethic around their food and don't want animals to be um, separated from the land and abused and exploited, and like think that industrial meat is evil, which like. I'm trying to not alienate every pig farmer in the country by being like, if you run a cattle, you're evil. But like, you know, you're working for an entity that like doesn't care about anything besides money and is like causing externalizing costs onto you, onto your animals, onto the water, onto the communities. We concentrate the everything in a way that just like guts rural communities. And, you know, like people in rural communities are feeling that. And right now you're seeing that come in, in populism. You know, this is the, when, when the rural communities, the, the people in the middle at the bottom get really squeezed, they react. And if you give them an outlet that is some charismatic leader saying, I'm here to save you, that we're going to build it back better. 
Oh, wait, that's this guy. The other guy was make America great again. It's just, it's the same term. I mean, it's the same exact yeah. phrase. But if we, you know, if we can create something that says, you know, both of these, both of these, you know, pot like factions are just two sides of the same shitty coin. And we need a, a real like alternative that is not just going to talk about guns and abortion and is going to start talking about food sovereignty Mm, and soil and nutrition, soil health, nutrition, and like stop trying to, you know, if we had a party that wasn't saying we need to socialize medicine so that we can control which corporations get paid off of the, you know, the pandemic levels of obesity and preventable diseases being caused by a poisoned food system and had somebody saying, we need to fix the food system. Like we need laws that are set up in a way where the giant corporations get appropriately regulated in a way that ensures food safety, that those regulations are separate from the, you know, small risk, regional scale, uh, you know, in-state or like, you know, interstate, but less huge commodity. And those should probably be different than like, you know, it makes no sense that if I want to kill four hogs a week on my farm, that I have to check off all the same boxes that a Chinese owned corporation that controls half of the global pork supply has to check off to be able to run a plant that processes 40,000 hogs a day. Like that's ridiculous, you know? Um, so because, like, <laughs> well, just knowing how people operate versus how an individual operates a business they care about versus how an employee works for a big company. Yeah, you're doing four a week. They're doing 10,000 a day. Labor requirements like man hours per pounds of meat to the cooler, you're probably doing just as good as they are. But you're also wearing all 17 hats at your processing plant, right? You're not just making one cut as that carcass comes screaming by on a chain at a speed of 10,000 per day. Right. No, you you can't train a whole animal butcher in ten minutes like you can a you know refugee uh, indentured servant essentially like which is mostly what works at these big meat plants. Um, it is a real problem. I mean, and that's where everybody comes back to the efficiency thing. Right. Well, this is more efficient, therefore it's less costly, and therefore it's better for people because they don't have to spend as much of their hard-earned dollar on food. But in reality, like. CAFOs are the least efficient food production method ever devised in all of human history. I mean, the, the amount of energy that goes into a pound of feedlot beef is hundreds of times the amount of energy actually embodied in the beef. You know, like I think when we're, if, if we raise an animal primarily either on perennial grasses that are already growing or, you know, in our case, byproducts of producing things that everybody wants, like bread, beer, whiskey, um, you know, the inevitable excess that comes with the fact that matching production to consumption all the time perfectly is not a good idea. And being under the demand for consumption uh, when it comes to your production means people go hungry. So there's always going to be some waste, but it doesn't have to be waste if you're recycling it, keeping the nutrients like going back into the ground and using it as a offset for the synthetic fertilizers that don't have the, the positive long-term impacts that like biological fertilizers do. So 
I got off a real, real squirrel trail there. I can't even <laughs> remember where I was trying to get to. I, I don't either. I was just enjoying listening to you talk. Uh, um, circ- circling back, like, and I, I've wanted to make this comment now for several minutes. Uh, you were talking about the, the meat police, the FSIS guys. Yeah. Now, it, from what I've been told now, I don't have any personal touch points with, with that organization is they're not going to volunteer any information or any answers and they really can't. But if you know the right questions to ask that they can be an absolute just cornucopia of information. Is that pretty true? Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of politics around it and what or not. I mean, I like not going to name any names or anything cause I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but like, you know, some of the folks that we've talked to are, um, you know, a little bit, maybe a little bit reticent. Like you could tell that they were definitely not supposed to go be going around sharing this stuff. But we, we, like I met the guy and uh, met him at a farmer's market while I was selling some meat that wasn't appropriately labeled. Uh, and I won't go too much into that, but got a little bit of a slap on the wrist. I met him and I, I sold him some sausage and uh, he came back a week later with his USDA FSIS badge on and uh, some of his oh, associates <laughs> and uh you know what was that like I, I i had to go change my shorts afterwards but like it was actually you know he came up and said i just wanted to make sure that you're aware that these are the requirements for the retail sale of meat and it's important that everybody abide by these and like it was the softest little slap on the wrist I'd ever gotten. And like the meat was actually, um, that animal had been harvested at a USDA plant. I didn't realize it at the time, but what we were doing, if we'd had the appropriate labels would have been legal. Um, I thought that what I was doing was illegal, but, um, subsequent conversations with the guy, I was like, how can we operate this business? Cause these are the problems we're running into. And he printed out the, it's got a ridiculous name. It's like the food safety inspection services guide for knowing when protein sources, including animal meat are, or are not uh, subject to federal and or state exemption. Like that's the name of the pamphlet, but it's they like a 20, 20- have an internal acronym for that. That's hilarious. Yeah, probably. Uh, but he printed it out and like met us at a coffee shop and went through it with us. And he had circled the things that he was like, this is probably going to be your best bet. Um, and, you know, at that point we were three, four years into it and nobody had ever told us that there's something called a retail exemption. Um, as long as an animal is harvested at a federally or state inspected plant, well, we'll stick with federal. Um, if an animal gets harvested at a federal plant, once it gets stamped and the carcass goes out the door, the feds don't care anymore. They have, they recommend that you abide by state and local uh, <laughs> regulations. But as far as the feds are concerned, if you get an animal slaughtered at a USDA plant, you cut it up in your garage and sell it by the pound. But can you mark those packages USDA? No, you can't wholesale. So the retail exemption says that as long as you're going direct to consumer and then there's another little loophole that says you can do up to $75,000 per year or no. 25% of your 
gross sales not to exceed $75,000 per year can go to hotels, restaurants, or institutions. Um, I was like, wait, so we don't need inspection for the processing as long as we get the animals slaughtered under inspection. So that was the, that was the seed that grew into, um, dialing in on where local plants that are already maxed out beyond capacity because there's only three of them in the whole state and there's millions of animals um their bottleneck is not on the slaughter floor it's on fabrication it takes a skilled a skilled um slaughterman can process an entire beef from live animal into hanging carcass in an hour um there are no skilled butchers that can turn a whole beef from a carcass into a bunch of packages in an hour. It takes like six guys half a day. Yeah. Um, so the slaughter floor like sits empty the majority of the time. So we went and said, well, we can do our own processing. Can we bring animals just for slaughter? And they're like, wait, well, so we can get paid 500 bucks to have the slaughter guy put an extra half day's work in and you pick up the carcasses the next day. Yeah, sure. Um, and then we didn't, it wasn't like our original business model involved doing all of, all of our own processing. Um, but by virtue of that was the option available, uh, we started doing our own butchering. And then you come and find out that part of the reason that, you know, the small guys get smoked is not just the efficiency of the processing, but it's all the variety of the processing. Like we get a hog back when we were taking it to a plant that processed it all for us, you get 40% back. And you know, just chops and roasts and grind. Where are my bones? Where are my innards? We get a whole carcass back. All of a sudden, like we're rendering the fat and selling it as cooking oil for ten dollars a pound. And then, so the the twenty pounds of fat off of your nice, well marbled hogs, that's that's two hundred dollars off of the carcass value. You, know, you take that 30 pounds of bones and you know it takes like six, seven pounds, five pounds of five to seven pounds of bones and put it in a crock pot with some carrots and onions and whatnot and leave it there boiling while you're breaking down the, the next hog. And then you sell bone broth at $15 a quart. Five pounds makes a gallon. That's $60 for a five pound bag of bones and you get 20, 30 pounds of bones off of it. It's another two, $300. You know, we used to, you know, the average, just to put this in perspective, your average commodity hog farmer gets about between 20 and $30 profit off of a hog. Sounds about right. So this is where like coming back to the beginning of the conversation, I don't think that, and it doesn't make sense for somebody who lives in rural Iowa and is trying to make a living producing food to say, you know, you should take your 2,500 head hog production and convert to the model that we have. Like, I, you know, we've got 20 sows. We don't run them very hard. We're finishing maybe 150 hogs a year. It's very, very small. Um, but the, the amount of food waste we're diverting, the amount of compost we're producing, uh, the amount of value that we can get out of the 
carcasses by being more vertically integrated, the value that comes to the surrounding agricultural community by us creating a space that was originally intended just for us to sell our product now services dozens and dozens and hundreds of other producers. So like, you know, saying, Hey guys, why don't you think about like, maybe, maybe you are contracted with Smithfield and you're shipping hogs out there. Maybe a few of them you should try to sell to a local butcher shop. Um, you know, maybe you guys should think about like seeing if some of the other hog farmers in the area want to invest in a small, um, you know, a small abattoir that could just do the slaughter so that people who want to, you know, who have grocery stores or, or want to start a butcher shop or restaurants who want to, you know, do whole animal utilization can get access to that market. And maybe it's not the whole model, but like, can we start thinking about how we can shorten those supply chains and not be so concerned with shipping hogs to China and think more about like, how can we get more of the, more of the retail dollars in our community going back into local agricultural operations or on the, or on the land management side of it? How can we like, you know, just get, um, get hog farmers to source local feed, like stop buying, buying the, the soy from the next state over and start thinking about supporting some non-GMO, you know, small family farm in your local area who's practicing regenerative practices and see if you can get some increased value on the market for your hogs just by being able to, to represent to the consumers that like you're investing in soil health, you're investing in local community and you're investing in things that like, you know, everybody's into. And like, if we, if we, if we can get some of those bigger guys to stop, you know, thinking of us as competition and as a threat and start looking at how they can adopt what we're doing into their practices in a way that makes sense for them and benefits them. And then vice versa. Like if we can look at what the big guys are doing, like whole animal utilization, it's a great example. Part of the reason meat is so cheap coming out of these high speed kill plants is that they pay for all of the inputs selling the, the stuff that isn't meat. <laughs> So like, how can we figure out how to stop sending all of our offal and all of our fat and all the other parts of the animal to the landfill um, and start reclaiming that and using that as like an economic driver to make us more competitive so that we can operate sustainable businesses that don't just cater to people who want to spend a bunch of money on money as a status symbol. You know, how can we actually reduce the cost for generally raised food to the point where somebody in the current economic reality can buy food from somebody in their community that is healthy, that is going to sustain them and also allow them to make their car payments and make their house payment and be able to still like take their kids on vacation once a year. That's the, that's, that's the challenge that I'm like really excited about right now. So it's also a daunting one, but we've got a lot of work to do, don't we? Like it, there's, yeah, a- we got to do it really fast. <laughs> I, and I worry that we're not doing it fast enough, but I think we're doing it as fast as we can. Well, I think a lot about, you know, history. I like was more into history growing up and theories of change around like revolution. And um, it's always funny, like, you know, in uh, I think 1765, you you wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to find one person out of a hundred who said that separating from England was a good idea in this country. You know, Ten years later, that's probably a pretty fair point. 
Project. Yeah, 19, 1992, you could not find a diplomat, an academic, a politician, or anybody with, you know, any concern about being perceived as a crazy person who said that apartheid was two years away from ending. Everybody said apartheid in South Africa would last till at least 2050. That's how long it was going to take before um, before white rule in South Africa ended. That was the global consensus in 1992. Apartheid ended in 1994. And in like, there is a lot. We didn't have any idea the Berlin Wall was about to come down either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was like that was 10, 20 years off, and then actually, no, it's two weeks next week. And well, like, I okay. think we're building towards that moment. And like, I'm excited about it. It's a cool time to be involved in this because you know what's the first they ignore you and then they ridicule ridicule you and laugh at you and then they fight you and then they and then you win like i think we've moved past the they ignore you stage yes and i think we're i think we're getting past the they ridicule you stage and right now what i'm feeling is like they're fighting hard and they're scared and and the more the more that you get especially people who are really bought into the system and that are never gonna you know talk about the spiritual connection between the soil and like your gut biome and like are just you know sort of dollars and cents sort of guys the more those guys are like no we're growing cover crops and we want to graze animals and we're setting up slaughterhouses and screw you guys the more we can get get the get the the old boys to to stop thinking of us as a threat and start thinking of us as the tip of the spear that they get to follow into a less shitty universe. Like I think then, then we're really going to see people quaking in their boots and, uh, and the change it's not complicated either. There's 10 different ways to solve the problem. Any one of them, you could just sign a bill, bam, give it two, three years. Like the transition starts happening. It takes some transition, but like the problems aren't even that hard. Even like my problem with the water, like we're 20 years away from running out of water. If we could reduce the center pivot irrigation by X amount, which if 1% soil carbon increase increases water absorption capacity by 20 to 30,000 gallons. If you increase the soil carbon on all of the center pivots in the Estancia Valley by five points, which you can do using cover cropping, soil amendments, biochar, good management, like that reduces the demand on water by, you know, a lot. Like we need, yeah, we need to cut, we need to cut 90% out of our groundwater pumping. Sounds crazy. Composting toilets, 30%. Changes in like the way we use agricultural water. Another easy, like 40, 50%. Water conservation in household use. Out of a band, you know, forest health, like the, the fault lines tend to be where you get, Elevation changes, which is also where you get trees. Trees, have, you know, forests haven't been thinned. We thin and burn the forest. Like the well my parents are on, they're up closer to the forest. They did thin, thinned and burned up the drainage from them. They saw a 60-foot increase in their well in one year. Largest ever recorded increase in this area in the last 30 years. Wait, directly. Wait, you mean when we get rid of some of these trees? that have been allowed to grow since we interrupted the natural fire pattern that our creeks will come back and our aquifers will refill. We can make it happen. It's not quite that simple, but like huge positive impacts from like, you know, if you get the federal government to be like the same thing we we're talking about with ownership being not just entitlement to extraction, but being, uh, uh, coming with responsibilities for stewardship, 
federal government claims jurisdiction over our land. Won't let us on there to cut firewood. Won't let people in there to log it. Heavily regulate even the hunting. Don't do shit to maintain it. Interrupt the fire cycles, interrupt all the things that like allow nature to maintain its own equilibrium. Like it takes an intervention at this point because if there's a fire, it will be devastating. But like if we can get the federal government to stop sending billions of dollars to other people to kill women and children and start like doing their job and maintaining, you know, stewarding the lands that they claim ownership over, um, like then that can be another high increase in, in the amount of water going back into the aquifer systems. Then it just comes down to like distribution and governance, you know, big fight that I'm in right now is with, the the, uh, we, we purchased a warehouse building adjacent to our, um, retail site to expand, to try to start doing like regional scale sort of processing. So we get out of our 400 square foot kitchen, uh, people we bought it from seemed like a neighborly, you know, handshake sort of deal. Like they needed to sell the stay solvent and we needed to move in to be able to have the deed so we could get the grants to yada, yada, uh, got screwed on the deal. And the reason we got screwed on the deal is because one of the only potable water resources for the community, um, for people whose wells run dry is on an adjacent lot. So they took away our access to the building so that they could control access to one of the few places that you can go and get potable water if your well runs dry. And that got approved by the county government. I'm not sure it's if the county government was trying to support this effort to privatize community water resources or if they were just trying to undermine our ability to start a meat processing plant in their suburban little haven because they didn't want to have to deal with that. Um, but either way, it brings up the, you know, real pressing question of like, what are, what are people's rights when it comes to access to, to healthy food, to potable water? Um, you know, yeah. And water doesn't come from a pipe and food doesn't come from the store. You're not entitled, you're not entitled to the fruits of another person's labor. So like there shouldn't, I don't see an entitlement to food. Do you have an entitlement to air? I'm not going to take it away from you. Do you have an entitlement to clean water? If you go get it, go for it. I'm not going to screw those things up for you. Well, that's also what I'm saying. But that there's, when you start talking about that, and I'm not saying you specifically, okay? Yeah. People start saying food is a human right. It's the same thing as saying healthcare is a human right, which means there's an outside entity that's going to compel me to give you my labor for free or to reduce cost. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But on the flip side, we don't have a society that affords everyone the opportunity to grow food. Not everyone has a place or an opportunity to be able to do that. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that people can't go find that if they're, if they're resourceful. I mean, probably they absolutely can, but by and large, it's not in front of everybody. Like there's not community gardens everywhere that people are walking by 10 times a day. You don't see advertisements for community food programs on CNN, right? That's, that's not their narrative at all. But yeah, I'm, I'm rambling and 
and we are we have run a little long, sir. Oh, it's been a really fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I don't think I got uh, I made a few notes, and I didn't really get to any of it. So we'll have to do another one sometime. Anytime. How would you like to end? Um. trying to think of a real zippy sign off and i just don't have one so i'll just say thank you for the opportunity and um yeah it's been really really interesting i'd love to continue the conversation if you ever have a gap in your schedule feel free to hit me up yeah we'll have to do it again sometime and uh you know don't feel bad about on the spot about not having any closing thoughts sometimes i can't come up with a snappy one-liner even when i've been thinking about it for two hours there you go all right we're gonna end have a good week guys thanks zach thank you If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.